This is the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria, Session 16. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Hey everybody, it's Matt Sicoria here, coming back at you in session 16 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. In this episode, Pat Fryman returns and we talk about a variety of uh, challenging issues, and or what I like to call grown-up problems. And the idea for this episode stemmed from our conversation in the first interview we conducted in session 10. And uh, I'm going to play just a little snippet of some of the things that Pat had to say in that episode that inspired me to ask him to return and elaborate. So hang on a second. I'll tell you something about behavior analysts. And when they get in trouble with their life, they don't go to a behavior analyst. You know, behavior analysts get depressed. Behavior analysts get divorced. Behavior analysts get anxious. Behavior analysts have trouble with their kids. Behavior analysts have trouble with their marriage. And when they encounter real trouble in any of those domains, they don't go to a behavior analyst for help. And we're completely missing the boat on some very important areas of human experience. You know, I'll tell you a quick story. You know, uh, I met someone at a conference and they were telling me that they had listened to the first interview that I conducted with Pat. And I said, well, if you like that one, we did a second interview and it's awesome because we talk about depression and anxiety. And then after kind of, uh, or as I was about halfway through that sentence, I realized the absurdity of it, or at least the way which might have come across that way, <laughs> and uh, realized that perhaps us in the, uh, or we in the helping profession, you know, perhaps have a uh, an interesting reinforcement history that would indicate what is and isn't uh, awesome. So, anywho, um, getting back to that clip I just paid of, uh, played of Pat's, you know, that passage right there just really struck a nerve, uh, especially the last line where he says we're truly missing out on some important areas of human experience. So again, that's why I brought him back on the show to kind of elaborate on these topics that we as behavior analysts aren't terribly comfortable talking about. So uh, so I'm going to try to get straight to it here. I do have two quick things to mention before we get to the show itself. Um, first of all, if you haven't done so already, I'd really, really appreciate it if you uh, went on iTunes and provided a review. And I've got a couple of recent reviews here that I'm going to uh, uh, read. Uh, one is from uh, MOBCBA, and I don't know if that's uh, Missouri BCBA or they're making some allusion to motivating operations. Uh, but, you know, sometimes people have some really uh, creative names that uh, they, they put on these iTunes reviews. I think one of them a while back was called, like, Passion for Graphin. Um, so, M-O-B-C-B-A writes, I look forward to new episodes of the podcast being released. Matt has covered a wide range of topics in a way that is applicable to both my personal life and professional practice. Keep them coming. Well, thank you. That's awesome. And Bunny Pig 102 writes... Thank you so much for disseminating invaluable information. Perfect for long drives to work. Well, the pleasure's mine, and that's really one of the reasons that I started the podcast, because I also have very long drives to work. Uh, let's see, it continues here. Uh, my colleagues and I discuss them after we have listened to them. It is like a book club, with, but with podcasts. You always do a great job. I really like your questions because they are right in line with the information I am looking for. Thank you. Well, again, thank you very much, uh, Bunny Pig 102. Uh, again, these uh, comments aren't just uh, to, I guess, make me feel good about what I'm doing, um, but the iTunes reviews really serve to increase the notoriety of uh, the podcast and, by extension, our profession of applied behavior analysis uh, amongst the backdrop of the uh, gazillions of podcasts that are out there. So every uh, rating and review counts. And uh, a couple of quick things on that. Uh, if you're not sure how to leave a rating or a review, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations. And I have a, uh, I found a YouTube uh, tutorial on how to uh, leave a rating and review. Um, and also, uh, if you are outside of the United States, you know, when I look on iTunes, uh, it only shows the reviews from uh, the United States. And I can 
I know how to look for different uh, areas, but you know, if you're in parts uh, far flung, uh, feel free to uh, either post to the Facebook page or uh, send me an email with a screenshot. Uh, and like I said, I'll, I'll start to read some of these on air uh, from time to time as they come in. So again, uh, if you have a second to do that, it takes about maybe less than two minutes. That would be terrific. And then finally, uh, this podcast is sponsored by bside21.org, uh, especially their ABA Outside the Box Continuing Education Series. So if you go to bside21.org forward slash C-E-U-S, you, that will bring you right to their page where you can sign up for their Type 2 Continuing Education uh, trainings. Uh, the one I did a while back was uh, Conversations That Drive Performance. And it was about how to have those uh, challenging conversations uh, and uh, things like that. It also has a nice little tutorial on relational frame theory kind of snuck in there uh, just for good measure. So um, again, that's bside21.org. And without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Pat Fryman. Hey, Pat. Thanks for coming back on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to do this with you, Matt. Thanks. Thanks. I uh, know you're out and about doing lots of talks all over the place, so it's uh, it's great that you take some time out of your day to uh, talk to me on the podcast and, by extension, talking to all the listeners to the uh, Behavioral Observations podcast. So, um, In our first conversation... I want to start out with a topic that you broached uh, in our first conversation, and uh, at the time, I didn't really register uh, how how kind of uh, profoundly that statement was, and it was something like this, and you can jump in if I've mischaracterized it or <coughs> said it incorrectly, but in our previous talk, uh, we were talking about a whole host of things, and then you made a comment that said basically that uh, behavior analysts, like everyone else, uh, we get... Uh, anxious, we get depressed, behavior analysts get divorced. We, In other words, we have all the same problems that everyone else does. However, when we seek out treatment for these sorts of things, we oftentimes don't seek out behavior analytic interventions or behavior analytic services. And it really just kind of uh, uh, struck me. And uh, I, I wanted to bring you back on to, to explore this topic a little bit uh, more. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot as a practitioner is, you know, how we kind of take care of ourselves, uh, how we can maintain our own sanity so we can help others. Uh, you know, in other words, how do we stay uh, sane in a world that <laughs> may, uh, may be less than so? So what I'm thinking here is I'd like to kind of get your take on uh, some of these topics that we just don't like talking about as behavior analysts and mainly things like anxiety, depression, marital conflict, stress, and things like that. Um, so ha having said all that, uh, you know, can you give us what your take is? Uh, you know, in other words, what is, uh, what would be a good behavior analytic primer on topics such as, uh, anxiety and depression and things like that? Well, first there, uh, like the number one, number two mental health conditions affecting, mankind you know, around the globe um, and when I say the term here anyway anxiety and depression I mean anxiety disorder depressive disorder because most intelligent people get anxious but it doesn't mean they have an anxiety disorder in fact you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody in our field or any field who prior to a presentation to a big audience wasn't anxious that doesn't mean they have an anxiety disorder. It just means that the biology of stress is affecting their body and uh, producing sources of energy that they can use to execute their performance or to get the heck out of there if they're going to engage in escape response. Um, so, and, and people are usually, and myself included, a little afraid of an audience. And anxiety is nothing more than being afraid of stuff that's not dangerous. Same token, by the same token, when stuff happens that we don't want to have happen and we can't seem to get it to stop or slow it down. It can have a depressive effect. That doesn't mean the person has a depressed, a depressive disorder. So I'm separating the two. There's like normal levels, typical levels of anxiety and depression in the world. And then there are anxiety disorders and depressive disorders. And that's when all of that reaches clinical significance. So 
just taking anxiety as the example, 29% of the people in the United States will at one time or another in their life suffer from an anxiety disorder. That's a lot. Yeah. Now, would that be like a, like an acute attack or would that be more of a... There are 12 different anxiety disorders. So an acute attack would be a panic attack. Um, and I don't know what the prevalence rate on panic attacks is. It's not 29%. The 29% is all the anxiety disorders folded together. Mm -hmm. uh, so it could be an acute attack or it might be just a slowly progressive condition where a person becomes increasingly afraid of, of, of being on the open, uncleanliness, imminent disaster that they manufacture in their imagination, <coughs> or fear of failure, fear of being alone. Um, and all the fears that are part and parcel of anxiety are normal, typical fears that human beings have. I'm just making a distinction between having them and then having them have you mm -hmm. in case and then you uh, end up in what you might call a disorder. So anxiety is a, is, a, is, a, is a disorder when it disorders a person's life. Being afraid to fly and flying does not suggest a disorder because the anxiety hasn't disordered the person's life. It's just made them uncomfortable. But being afraid to fly and absolutely refusing to fly is reflective of an anxiety disorder because that anxiety has disordered that person's life to the degree that they won't get on a plane. Being afraid to give a speech and then giving one is not suggestive of a disorder, but being afraid to give a speech and then refusing to do it is a reflective of a disordered uh, operation because you know, the person can't, they can't talk to an audience. <laughs> so I, but you know what? I like to hire anxious people. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tell me more about that. Well, I don't have to check on them. <laughs> you know, they check on themselves. Like my, my thought is, like the laid back people in the world, they won this one. They persuaded the world that laid back is normal. But do you really want to be involved with a lot of laid back people? Because I tell you, if you marry a laid back person, here's what you got. You got to go and check to make sure the garage door is closed. You got to make you got to go through the checkbook and make sure the bills have been paid. You got to make sure the sell by date on the milk isn't way beyond where it should be. You got to make sure there's stuff gets put back in the refrigerator, the lid gets put back on, the, the tool gets replaced. Uh-oh. I'm not going to let my wife listen to this episode. I'm just saying, yeah. <laughs> that's what laid back is. It's like, whatever. <laughs> Whereas you got an anxious person on, on deck, they make sure all that stuff happens. The garage door is closed, the bills are paid, the stuff's back in the refrigerator, the lid's put on, the tool's put away. And they anticipate what's going to happen down the road. For me... The anxious people on my staff, they get the paperwork done on time. They're out in the waiting room waiting for their clients. They're not sitting in their offices thinking, oh, yeah, I got to. Oh, right. I'm supposed to be out there. <clears throat> so I like to hire anxious people because you can really count on them. So anxiety of itself is actually, I think, a very useful trait. It's just when there's too much of it that it becomes a problem. So just as an aside, uh, can you... When you say you like to hire anxious people, are are you pleased when you discover that they're slightly anxious, or can you tell when you're talking to them? I look at I look for it on the front end. Okay. Although, usually, if you got a bunch of paper in front of you representing a person, you know their application and their their vita and their transcript and letters of recommendation, a person that knows a lot about anxiety can kind of spot it just in the paperwork. Really? Well, it's really hard to excel without having some degree of anxiety to fuel the performance. Okay, so so if your CV looks like the uh, phone book to Concord, New Hampshire, when it's printed out. Something was driving that, and it wasn't uh, being laid back. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want to slight laid back people, but it just seems unlikely that a person that's really laid back would have a Vita that weighs a pound and a half. Mm-hmm. What would have fueled that performance? What would have had them work so hard to excel? Is it certainly doesn't come from being laid back. Right, right. Um, so yeah, I can use, I can spot it in an interview. I can usually divine it from paperwork. Um, and it's not like I would be biased against people that are pretty laid back. Um, but I watch for it. Uh, 
And I'll, sometimes I just ask people, you know, would you describe yourself as a nervous or anxious person? Because the culture's done such a number on people that are nervous or anxious, they'll usually say no, even if they are. Mm-hmm. But that's just, I, I really feel like the, the laid back people have won the public relations game. <laughs> okay. Well, I, uh, I, I'll, I'll graciously accept that victory. Um, <laughs> wh- why do you suppose we have such a hard time talking about anxiety as, as behavior analysts? You know, uh, you know, the point I made in that conversation we had previously was that behavior analysts, when they get into trouble with things, with a, in life trouble. Yeah, like, like grown-up problems. <laughs> yeah, they don't go to a behavior analyst. Um, and it's reflective of an inherent bias that people outside the field have, but people that, people that are inside the field also have. They just don't know they have it. And it's the assumption that our field can all be boiled down to push, pull, click, click that we really just work with very simple forms of behavior. And we work with human beings that are relatively simple in terms of their abilities. And for more sophisticated problems, we need more sophisticated ideas. And I'm saying the ideas that people think of as more sophisticated are indeed more sophisticated, but people think that they are. Um, And so the assumption culture wide, is that behavior is a function of, of psychology, of character, of morality. And the assumption in our field is that behavior is a function of circumstances. And that's the most powerful idea ever invented by mankind for understanding, knowing, and approaching human behavior when it's a problem. But in our attempt to get that idea out to the world, we use the very simple form of language, like a technical language, so that we could keep those other kind of mentalistic notions out of our speaking and end up with a very precise way to communicate. And that's really useful for the lab, really useful for the classroom, really useful for the journal article, really useful for the textbook, but it is really not useful. In fact, it's harmful to any conversation you might have with a person outside the field. But we never developed a language for communicating the mechanics, the mechanics of behavior analysis to people outside the field. And in most graduate programs, I think feel, the students feel like that they shouldn't attempt to communicate about behavior analysis using ordinary language. But when that student gets into trouble because of, a, of an adult problem, mm-hmm. they're going to want to be able to talk about it as completely and fully as they can. And they're going to want to be able to use every word they have at their disposal And they're going to want the person that they're talking to to speak in the same way. And if the person they're talking to acts as if using everyday language is inappropriate for the conversation and boils down the conversation to a set of technical terms, the person with the problem is going to feel like that that one, they can't communicate very well. And two, they're not being heard. Uh, I see. So I think the bias is inside the field. It's just something that we're kind of unconscious of. But the bias is reflected when a person inside the field has what you call an adult problem. They don't go to somebody inside our field to help them with their problem. They go to somebody that speaks in a sort of plain, everyday way. And they tend to, they want somebody that will listen non-critically and give them some fairly straightforward advice about how to proceed. And they don't want somebody that's coming from a push-pull, click-click mentality. Now, and I, our field can, our field, as a function of that core idea, is more than adequate for adult problems. It is a vastly superior way to approach adult problems. So we've got something to work with. Mm-hmm. The idea that behavior is a function of circumstances is extremely powerful, very useful, and can guide very effective interventions. But the person that's using the idea to supply the intervention, in my opinion, needs to get better at communicating that idea using plain, ordinary language when they're talking to plain, ordinary people, as opposed to using the technical terms of our field, which just turns people off. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um and when somebody's really hurting and you're talking to them, you don't want to turn them off. You want to turn them on. And talking to them in a foreign language and acting as if that's the way they should talk too, I think, runs the risk of turning them off. So let me <clears throat> ask you this. If, uh, 
someone is anxious and it's kind of moving in a direction that it's, you know, from, from I guess, one pole to another, uh, that is to say that the nervousness or anxiety is going from a, a place where, you know, you can give a speech despite your apprehension about doing so to moving in the direction of not being able to give a speech or not being able to get on an airplane or, or, or moving in that direction that you described earlier that is now impacting their life. And let's say that individual uh, seeks treatment from a therapist. Um, how, what are some signs that that, you know, what are some good practices and how, how would someone know whether or not they are um, receiving interventions or participating in interventions that, that have a, a higher likelihood of being successful? Well, you know what, here's, here's, that's, that, that question leads me to a, a place where a behavior analyst could easily go south. Um, because the first pass intervention for somebody that's got stage fright is to address how they think about anxiety. But just imagine, say, a second or third year graduate student who's told what you need to do is help this person with their thinking. Because they're probably already thinking that you're not supposed to talk about thinking. Mm -hmm. I think they've heard something like that from their advisors or read something like that in one of their textbooks. But it's very effective as a first pass working with people that have stage fright to change how they think about stage fright because all stage fright is, is the generation of the energy that's naturally produced by being in the presence of threat. I mean, the whole thing boils down to what's called a threat based stress reaction, which is a cascade of events that happens to mammals when they're in the presence of anything threatening. And I don't mean to get too technical about it, but it, it generates a biochemistry of stress, which is epinephrine, uh, cortisol, and, and, and adrenaline. Mm -hmm. once, those, once those chemicals are in the system, they recruit glucose from the muscles in the liver because that's going to be used for fuel. Uh, once the glucose is in the system, it needs to be metabolized. And the way it's metabolized is by having increased amounts of oxygen, so breathing rate changes. It turns into energy. Now it needs to be distributed. It's distributed through the capillary system, so blood pressure and heart rate goes up. And that's that fearful state. Mm -hmm. And people have been taught by our culture to think when they feel that way, that's bad. And they need to do something to not feel that way. Well, when it comes to speaking, all good performers know, no, wait a minute, that's good. That energy is really useful. It fuels the performance itself. You want to feed off of it and add to the vitality of your presentation, add to the energy of your emotions, add to the energy of your thinking, add to the creativity of your thinking because you got all this energy to work with. So you merely change the way a person thinks about the experience they have before they go on the stage and have them embrace it rather than try and resist it, and they do better. And some mainstream psychologists are already showing that's the case. And just doing that simple intervention, having them and the term they use in mainstream psychology is reframe it. Mm -hmm. Have them reframe their perspective on the experience they have that they call stage fright, and they do better in their performance. Uh, so that's useful information. It's just that it's hard to imagine a mainstream conventional behavior, not a mainstream, but a, a, a conventional traditional behavior analyst having that conversation with a client because the emphasis is on how the person thinks and not on, and this is not me talking, this would be them talking, how they behave. Right. We'd be concerned with what was going on prior to the speech and what are the potential reinforcing consequences post-speech, et cetera, you know, post-bailing post, post uh, bailing out of it or whatever. And the reluctance to acknowledge that thinking is behaving. Yeah. That's really important. So <clears throat> that's a first pass. Now, if people are really terrified of public speaking, so it's like a phobia, well, then there's pretty straightforward treatment for all the phobias. And the central component of that treatment is escape extinction. And this is another example of where we'd, we have, I was going to say screw the pooch, but that's probably not something you're supposed to say. on. on, on hey, this <laughs> is, uh, you know, I can put an explicit tag on iTunes and we're, we'll be all set. So uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that, you know, anyway, uh, go ahead. Yeah, this, well, uh, speak, speak as if, uh, <laughs> speak freely, I should say. Uh, uh, 
Escape extinction is the technical term, but it is so technical that it that it's not something that 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 lends itself well to everyday speech. So behavior therapists, like cognitive behavior therapists, for example, they came along and they always examine our stuff. They know we got stuff. They know we got good stuff. They just know we don't communicate it very well. So they find our stuff and they repackage it and they sell it as their own. So they take escape extinction and they call it exposure and response prevention. And that sells exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. And that is the number one treatment for all the anxiety disorders, phobia included. Another variation on that is systematic desensitization. So it's all pretty much the same thing. It's putting the person in the presence of the thing and not allowing them to avoid or escape it and doing that in small doses. And so for a person with stage fright, you want to introduce, I'm just making this up as I go along, it depends on the client and how fast they're willing to go and how, uh, how far they're willing to go. But you introduce them to the room, have them be comfortable in the room. Have them sit in the back, then sit in the front, then walk up to the stage, then stand behind the podium, imagine an audience, talk to the imaginary audience, turn on the microphone, talk in the microphone to the imaginary audience, have a couple of people in the audience, have the person talk to them, and then gradually build it out until there's a whole audience and they're talking to that audience. That's basically the kind of program. It's like you just do it in steps. You never have a step that the person is unwilling to take on. Mm-hmm. You keep slicing those steps down until they're a size that the person will agree to execute. And then you have some kind of a, a reinforcement program for executing the steps. And so it's, a, I don't know, sort of a chaining program, I guess. Or And when it's done really, really well, it's errorless learning. Mm-hmm. So, so how, <coughs> you know, for those who are, well, I guess let me just uh, phrase the question differently. Uh, how ubiquitous or not are these procedures out there with, uh, shall we say, everyday therapists, for not necessarily behavior analytic providers, but I'm thinking licensed clinical, you know, mental health counselors, MSWs, uh, et cetera? Um, in the field of cognitive behavior therapy or behavioral cognitive therapy, they're both the same. It just depends on which, which uh, segment of the group you're part of. Um, there isn't a single person in that group, and that's by far the largest group of clinical psychologists in the world that doesn't have exposure and response prevention as the number one or number two technique in their armamentarium. You move outside of mainstream psychology into social work or into psychotherapy, where you have people licensed and certified at the master's level, it becomes a little less prevalent. Mm -hmm. In fact, I had a client yesterday who has a clear-cut case of flying phobia that was the result of a really turbulent flight down to Mexico that took place a year ago. And he's got a therapist that he's working with, and she has convinced him that it's not just a phobia. It's sort of central to his identity, tied to how he was raised as a child, and she's linked it to other things that have happened in his life and made it seem like it may be with him forever. And he doesn't know any better, so he's bought that perspective, but his wife has got these tickets for a flight to uh, Disneyland, and they got a two-year-old and a five-year-old, and these kids are wanting to go to Disneyland more than anything in the world. And she came to me because she's saying, my husband won't fly. He's got this therapist telling him that he can't fly. I want him to fly. The kids want him to fly. He used to be able to fly. Is there anything you can do? And obviously there is. But first, I got to get them to the right person. I mean, I could be that person or anybody that works with exposure and response prevention could be that person. The person he's with now is actually the wrong person for him to work with because she's got an entirely unworkable perspective on flying phobia. Mm -hmm. The phobias are the easiest to treat of all the anxiety disorders. In fact, they're called simple phobias because they usually are simple, meaning they usually only foc- the the phobia is really only focused on like one set of stimuli, mm-hmm. like like things. bees or something like that or whatever, or public speaking or flying or <coughs> or or you know spiders or snakes or mice. Yeah, I see. <coughs> so if I can just kind of paraphrase what I'm hearing here, it sounds like within the ranks of say, your licensed clinical psychologist, i.e. Um, individuals who are in a um, 
what we would consider, I guess, a, a PhD program or a PsyD or something along those lines are going to have adequate to or sufficient training in, in, in these types of practices to be able to use procedures that have a, a pretty good base in the uh, research yeah. literature and et, et cetera. Yeah. And then once you step out of that into other types of uh, helping professions or whatever, it, it, uh, it, it's less so. The further you get from any kind of empirically supported forms of psychology and psychotherapy, the more you get into the land of psycho what's it. Okay. Once you're in psycho what's it, people there, they use anything they want to use and they call it therapy. Mm -hmm. You know what? In the, in the world of psychology and psychotherapy, there are no standards of practice except ethical. As long as you're behaving ethically in a professional setting, you can do anything you want and call it therapy. So fundamentally, you can't sleep with your clients. You can't overcharge your clients and you can't talk about what happened in the session with anybody other than the client. And you follow those rules pretty closely. You can do anything you want. And a lot of people do. I see. It's bad for the clients. It's actually good for my practice because when people end up in our shop, they're almost like, where on earth have you been? That mumbo jumbo I've been facing is pretty much just that. I see. Now, now there's a key thing here though for behavior analysts, the core treatment, for all anxiety, is one of our ideas. It's escape extinction, pure and simple. It's just packaged differently and spoken about using different language, but it's still our idea. I want to just come back to this notion that, that our, the core idea of our field is that behavior is a function of its circumstances and context, past and present, and that is, by a wide margin, the most powerful idea ever invented by mankind for understanding, knowing, and approaching human behavior when it's a problem. And when you find stuff outside of our field that works and you decode it all and, and, and unpackage it, you'll find one of our ideas right at the core of it. Sure, sure. I, I, I see that in other areas in the, uh, where, you know, someone's talking about um, whether it's a uh, exercise or nutrition or what have you and some of the strategies that people are using to kind of get healthier and more in shape and things like that. And uh, a lot of those interventions are very behavior analytically based they talk about them using all sorts of mentalistic terms and things like that but at its core it is that so I, I, I see that not only from what you're saying but certainly I make those observations from time to time in, in other realms as well outside of mental health too um, well that's at the core of this thing we're talking about when we say that behavior analysts don't take their adult problems to behavior analysts they want to take their problems to somebody that can do something for them and anybody using our ideas can do something for them but they want to go to a person that communicates the idea in a way that makes it seem uh, more relevant to their concerns. And that scientific language that's at the core of our field, that wasn't designed to talk to people in everyday life. That was designed by geeks to talk to geeks mm -hmm. because they want the language to be as precise and parsimonious as possible. They want to get it as close to math as they can. So, that makes sense in a scientific context. It does not make sense in a clinical context. The person, the, the medium of exchange there is communication at a broad level. And if you're able to get the whole communication boiled down to a few mathematical-like statements, it's going to be pretty unsatisfying to the troubled client. <coughs> so really, we, we've got the right ideas. We just have the wrong means of transmission. Yeah, it makes me think where we're missing something in our in our preparation of behavior analysts, particularly in this age of, uh, shall we say, kind of a rapid expansion of the field of uh, board-certified behavior analysts? No question. they got to be able to take that test, these young behavior analysts, take that test, the BCBA exam, and pass it. And you can't pass it without mastering the technical language of the field to some degree. Oh, yeah, but unquestionably. But that language that they use to pass that test is not going to help them when they're talking to parents. There's a mistake, I think, that the, uh, I think this is a mistake. It's the, the autism programs that I uh, consult with or the groups that I speak to, they're training the parents they work with to speak behavior analytic ease. I think that's a mistake because if the, if the parent has learned to describe what's happening to their child using behavior analytic ease, and there isn't anybody in their world they can talk to about what's happening because their friends and family and their neighbors are not going to understand behavior analytic ease. 
And the parent that we've taught to speak it is not necessarily going to be able to decode it for them. What we should be doing is explaining what's happening while we're doing therapy with the children in ordinary language so the parent can take the ordinary language and talk to their friends, family, and neighbors about what's happening at the clinic. But they start throwing around terms like establishing operation, negative reinforcement, and manned, and their neighbor has no idea what they're talking about. So the conversation ends right there. And that 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 neighbor is a node on the transmission line as far as communicating the idea is concerned. And we don't want it to stop there. We want it to keep on moving. I think that what instructors should be doing is teaching their students to be bilingual. Mm-hmm. Tell me what a discriminative stimulus is. And now tell me it in a way that your mother would understand. Yeah. So they can do both. They can be fluent in the lab and they can be fluent on the lawn. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good advice. Um, certainly something to think about uh, for uh, not only students, but practitioners who are uh, listening to us right now. Um, or I, I want to change gears a little bit. We touched on this earlier, but I'm, you did a great job of just kind of decoding anxiety. Can you do this same kind of walkthrough for depression? For sure. those of us who don't have as strong a mental health background. Yeah. Well, uh, the core variable in just about all of what they call psychopathology is avoidance. And so you've got your anxiety disorders and you've got your depressive disorders. And the hallmark of both is avoidance. And so the person that's anxious is avoiding stuff that scares them. But the stuff that scares them isn't dangerous. And approaching it would be beneficial to their life. It would expand their life and make them more productive. Um, with a person that's depressed, they're avoiding contact with the aspects of life that formerly were, uh, if, in our terms, reinforcing to them, in their terms, uh, satisfying or pleasurable or enjoyable. <coughs> Sometimes there's a bona fide reason, you know, the death of a loved one, the breakup of a love relationship, uh, the loss of a job. And sometimes it's hard to trace the immediate cause. Uh, but the hallmark of it is this kind of feeling of dread, um, the feeling of uh, worthlessness, the feeling of hopelessness. And then the behavioral dimension of it that's really important is they withdraw from everyday life. So in, in plain colloquial terms, I think of depression as a siren, like a siren from uh, uh, Ulysses and the Odyssey. Remember the sirens tried to beckon Ulysses to these rocks where his boat would founder and crash. Mm-hmm. And he lashed all his mates to the uh, various parts of the boat so that they wouldn't like jump out of the boat and swim over to the sirens. And, and they put wax in his ears so he couldn't hear them. And, I think of depression as that kind of a siren and depression is beckoning the person that's afflicted so they can get them all alone. The depression just wants to be all alone with that person and they want to shrink down the world. So it just contains a bathroom, a bedroom, a television set and a little bit, but not too much to eat. And then they can spend all their time together. And the person that treats depression wants it to go the other way wants the person to stop listening to the siren, to come out of the bedroom, come out of the bathroom, eat more, go out of the house, expand the size of their life. So depression shrinks life, treatment expands it. There are three, and this is again where behavior analysts will be reluctant to tread, a world where they'll be reluctant to tread, but I think they shouldn't be afraid of these kinds of things. There are three cognitive dimensions to depression. There are Uh, It's called an attributional triad. It boils down to this. The person believes that there's something wrong with them. It's me. And they think there's nothing I can do about it. And they think it's going to last forever. And the combination of those attributions results in this state of hopelessness and helplessness, which has the person not motivated to do anything other than stay in their home or stay in their bedroom. And then there are three behavioral dimensions, three hallmarks, One is, um, usually, first of all, a change in sleeping habits. Usually, it's an increase in sleep. Sometimes, it's an inability to sleep, but their sleep is affected. And then, 
appetite is affected. And usually um, it, the, the appetite is diminished. Sometimes, not very often, but sometimes people eat more. But sleep is, is affected, appetite is affected, and activity levels are affected. And with the activity levels, those are always decreased. <coughs> so you got a person that feels helpless and hopeless, and they've pretty much stopped eating. They're sleeping as much as they can, and they're not doing anything else. Uh, and so the, the, the treatment is, is a circumstantially derived treatment. The most effective treatment for depression, just like for anxiety, is a circumstantially derived program called behavioral activation. And that's at, it's at the core of ACT. It's, it's getting people to engage in the world and do stuff that they find important or that is uh, valuable to them. Okay, so you identify you know, kind of what they want or what's important to them and then basically prompt them to engage in those behaviors that are consistent with, with those values? Any way you can. Because here's the deal. You, it's impossible to be depressed and in action at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if we can get the person out in the world and engaging with the world, they're not depressed while that's happening. But remember, depression is a siren. Depression is like tapping them on the shoulder and wanting to lure them back to their home and to their bedroom and, and just have that person all to themselves and not have them do anything. So we're always doing battle with the siren. Because the person, I mean, they have their own way of thinking about it. They're just saying, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go out. I don't want to face people. Nothing's important to me anymore. I don't enjoy any of that stuff. And this is where they're coming from. And so it's our job to get them to do it any way we can. So do you do you coach them to kind of recognize those sirens and notice that they're happening and then yes. you know essentially tie yourself to the mast or whatever, you know. Yeah. I, I know I'm having the thought that yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to stay home. I know that this is what happens and I know that historically that this is not good for me, blah blah blah. Yeah, that's kind of what happens in ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy is is they uh, work with people and have them recognize those thoughts, but recognize them as thoughts mm-hmm. and not as a representation of anything other than thinking. So there's a person has the thought that life is meaningless and they think that's true and then it has an effect on them or they have the thought that life is meaningless and then their position is I'm having the thought that life is meaningless. It doesn't, of itself mean life is meaningless. All it means is I'm having that thought. <clears throat> That's a distinction that act therapists try to create with their clients is to have thoughts and see them just as thoughts and not as representations of reality. Now, I am tempted to kind of go down, um, go into the weeds or go down a rabbit hole, but would that be a distinction between traditional cognitive behavior therapy that would challenge and try to refocus those thoughts as opposed to just kind of and the ACT model of noticing that they're there? It's in the same category, I would say. The, the primary um, method in uh, cognitive therapy is um, cognitive... <laughs> I love... These guys are good at selling their stuff. I'm not <laughs> Package stuff really well. So they call it cognitive reconstruction, which, you know, it sounds like something. Yeah. But you, you sounds un- important. <laughs> yeah, it does. But all it is is talking people into or out of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> But see, you can't charge for that. <laughs> we offer cognitive reconstruction, but you tell insurance companies you're just talking people into stuff. You get into well, we're not paying you for that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's fundamentally what it is. And this recognizing a thought as a thought is kind of in that same domain, um, but it, there's a slightly different valence to it uh, because we're not challenging the thought. Yeah. We're just wanting the person to see that it is a thought and nothing more than a thought <clears throat> as opposed to saying that thought's irrational and let's look at all the evidence that suggests that's not true. You know, you got your kids, you got your job, you got the sun rise every morning, you got the sun set every night, you have your church and how can you like that? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that I think as I've grown older, I've realized that the use of evidence, and I think what you're doing essentially in that explanation or that example is 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 that that therapist who's trying to you know kind of challenge those those thoughts is they're presenting evidence to the contrary and what we would just you know interpret as data in, in some yeah, respects. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and and I guess one of the things that I've 
learned, and sometimes the hard way over the years, is that people aren't as enamored with evidence and data as we are as behavior analysts. Absolutely not. And and I have uh, learned that uh, in order to be persuasive, you need to um, understand that and notice that there are different ways to kind of communicate what's important, uh, whether it's, you know, <coughs> whether it's how to intervene with an individual who has a repertoire of challenging behaviors or how uh, or, or trying to coach staff to stay consistent with a, uh, a, a, a learning program or something like that. Yeah. Well, uh, I think a, an evidentiary uh, approach could potentially work with a person that is accustomed to evidentiary approaches in their everyday life. So uh, I might try an evidentiary approach with an accommodation I, if I had that person as a client, if they were one of the hard sciences, or maybe even a lawyer, because um, right. both, both groups use precedents um, in order to make their cases. And so they're, they're accustomed to having people speak to them that way, and they themselves speak that way. But I wouldn't uh, necessarily use an evidentiary approach with somebody that was a preacher or, you know, like, uh, somebody that was a professor in the humanities um, or an artist. Mm-hmm. And I change up my metaphors depending on who's in front of me. So I never let anybody know my politics. I never let anybody know my religion. I have politics. I have religion. And the only person on the planet that probably knows either very well, and even she doesn't know them well, is my wife. But I will use political metaphors and religious metaphors in my work, if I think they'll work for my client, and they may come away from the conversation thinking I'm a, my politics are this way or my religion is that way, and I don't do anything to dissuade them. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to get my message across. Uh, and and so, uh, I use a lot of Christian metaphors, and I find those work better with the majority of my clients than the evidentiary approach. Um, I see. Uh, one of the things I work with frequently is forgiveness. You know, I want the parents to be forgiving of their children. I want the spouse whose partner has been adulterous to, to be forgiving. I want the person that's on the receiving end of some unfairness from their boss to be more forgiving. And I can cite all the evidence in the world showing that forgiveness is a healthful psychological trait. And I might get somewhere, or I can hearken them back to the greatest act of forgiveness in the history of our species, which is Jesus Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that just seems to resonate with people, a lot of people that I work with, much more so than evidence would. I might start there and then go to evidence, but I might not start with the evidence first and then go there. Interesting. You know, I was listening to a uh, different podcast, and there was a lot of discussion about ACT, and one of the people on the podcast was saying that the whole idea of, uh, you know, kind of acceptance and, you know, all that stuff, it, that the people that they work with who who do have a religious background just instantly get that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they the, the, the bar is lower to clear in order to work on that particular skill uh, within the six item uh or the the hexaflexes i think yeah, they the call hexaflex. it so yeah, yeah um so yeah interesting um <coughs> i kind of want to move on to um perhaps you know more everyday stressors but is there any anything you want to any final thoughts on depression before we kind of move along to the next thing i want to talk about um well, two things. One is, I don't think a behavior analysts should shy away from anxiety or depression, which I think happens. I think that for a lot of, especially junior behavior analysts, once they've learned that the person they're working with has an anxiety disorder or depressive disorder, they think, oh, that's psychiatry. That's somebody else's uh, uh, domain. And I, I, I think it's as much our domain as it is anybody else's. In fact, we have a more powerful idea to, to bring to bear on the problem. Now, that doesn't mean they should necessarily take on the client until they learn how to talk about depression or anxiety in an effective way, but I don't think it's I don't think these are classes of problems that behavior analysts should avoid. 
they should learn more about them, mm-hmm. uh, learn how to speak about them more effectively, but not avoid them. Secondly, sometimes medication is helpful. Not as a cure, like the medications that are used for anxiety and depression don't cure anxiety or depression. But what they do is they stabilize a person that is really unstable so that they can be receptive to um, experiences that are curative. Because sometimes people are, are so depressed or so anxious, they just can't function. And they take medication and now they can function. And while functioning, then they can benefit from more powerful forms of therapy. So if there's a stand that medication is inherently not good, I, I think that's a problematic stand. It can be helpful. It just is the medication is not going to produce a cure. Right, right. I guess. <coughs> um, and just in my experience, uh, you know, working with individuals with severe challenging behaviors, sometimes, uh, you know, m- many, many of these kiddos uh, are a lot are, are often on uh, medications and things like that, and so sometimes just taking that edge off so you have some room to work uh, it can be helpful. So um, I've seen that in other domains, uh, you know, kind of outside of. Uh, anxiety and depression and things along those lines. So, um, cool. Um, so I want to move on to talking about some, uh, other things that we encounter as behavior analysts. We see a lot of things in our everyday life that are, that, you know, that can be very stressful. And I don't want to say that a behavior analyst job is more stressful than say a, a police officers or, or anything else. But, you know, we do see, you know, we do see cases of, uh, you know, depending on what population you work with, sometimes we see, we work with kids who have been treated very poorly. Uh, we see um, uh, staff members sometimes who um, uh, are encountering lots of stress because, uh, you know, they're working with individuals or, you know, they're either witnessing self-injury or they're, you know, individuals trying to hit them or throw chairs at them and things like that. We We work a lot with other team members, whether they be parents or teachers or, you know, frontline therapists uh, who sometimes have very um, emotional responses to what's going on. Uh, And then we certainly have the high stakes of uh, oftentimes children, you know, and and their welfare. Um, (coughs) and, And so I guess where I'm going with this laundry list here is that there's, you know, no shortage of stressors. Uh, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of some some good practices for for self care for for behavior analysts who are practitioners dealing with these you know really kind of emotionally charged uh, uh, situations and things like that. How do we take care of ourselves? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. Well, first of all, I want to I want to want to talk about stress uh, because it's been indicted um, unfairly, I think, because uh, stress isn't a bad thing. Um, that's I just want to take you back to the. Th- the threat-based stress response. There's also a reward-based stress response. The stress response is merely the body being mobilized for action. And it's mobilized for action by events that are occurring outside the body. So in a reward-based stress response, the body is being mobilized to approach, obtain, and consume. For a threat-based stress response, the body is being mobilized to either attack and kill or withdraw. It isn't always appropriate to attack and kill or withdraw. It isn't always appropriate to approach, obtain, and consume. Be that as it may, the body is still mobilized for action. That's stress. If there's nothing that can be done with that stress, then it's potentially harmful. It's like, now what? And that's where you get the stereotypy in uh, spectrum disorders person is stressed by something that's happened in their day. They can't attack the source of the stress. They can't run out of the building. They still have the energy. What do they do? Well, they flap and pace and and moan or engage in verbal stereotypy. A parent that is expecting a call from a child whose curfew has come and gone and they can't leave the house to find their child and there isn't anybody to call. And so they have to sit there with that knowledge. What do they do when they they pace, they fret, they bite their knuckles, they moan. They're using the energy. Um, so if the energy that's been summed up by either a threat stimulus or a reward stimulus can be uh, 
transformed into action and executed successfully, everybody goes home in a limousine. If, however, that energy can't be used, it's still there. It's like the engine on the car is running, but the gear is not engaged. Mm-hmm. And that can wear a person down. And so the first thing I want to emphasize is that stress isn't inherently a bad thing. Absent it, nothing would get done. Uh, we wouldn't have any rewarding experiences, and we'd be eaten by predators. Mm-hmm. So it is useful, and uh, evolutionarily speaking, and every day airily speaking um but then let's talk about burnout because stress is a factor but burnout isn't a function of working too hard burnout isn't a function of taking on problems that are too big burnout is a function of engaging in (coughs) in effortful responses that don't produce an outcome and so uh our our behavior analysts, behavior analytic therapists across the country uh, are working on really hard problems and they're facing troublesome situations. They're facing people that are emotionally uh, overwrought or distraught or upset on a regular basis. Um, But none of that burns people out. But if they are facing all those people and facing all those problems and uh, engaging in effortful responses and those responses aren't making a difference, and that will burn them out. Uh, so, so it sounds like extinction, I guess. <laughs> I guess. Um, ultimately, yeah, I can see that. Uh, what, what, what? I'll throw in one more psychological experience here, which is being over overwhelmed, because um, I think a lot of people that have a lot of uh, difficult problems to work on sometimes are at risk for being overwhelmed. There is a solution to all of this, and that is start something you can finish. And then when you're done with it, start something you can finish. And when you're done with it, start something <laughs> you can finish. Don't start anything you can't finish. And if the thing in front of you is so big you could never finish it, well, then that thing can be divided down into small steps that can be finished. Because as people complete steps and finish them, the, the, the sense of completion, the act of finishing generates energy. Uh, we tend to think of that in behavioral momentum terms, and I think that's reasonable. Uh, a person that's experiencing behavioral momentum throughout the course of their workday doesn't go home feeling unsatisfied. They go home feeling satisfied. But a person that faces extinction throughout the course of their workday will go home unsatisfied. So it's kind of up to each of us to construct our day so that it's composed of things that involve value-oriented activities and that we start things that we can finish. And by doing those two things, we avoid the experience of burnout, we avoid the experience of being overwhelmed, and we enjoy the experience of actually enjoying our jobs and feeling like we're making a difference. I see. Um, well, did, it's a pretty... did, I address, did I address your question? Yeah, yeah, that was that was a pretty, uh, pretty concise way of, uh, of framing up stress and, and, and burnout and things like that. And again, I think it points to... A very common topic that we tend to talk about in our popular culture in, in non-behavioral terms, and uh, I noticed kind of after I blurred out extinction while you were trying to make that description, it's kind of like, well, there I went again, you know, uh, <laughs> t- t- talking in behaviorally. So, well, we we made it fit. <laughs> What's that? We made it fit. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know we're kind of running up on time here, but um, I. I in our last conversation, you, you mentioned the work of, uh, I, I believe it was John Gottman, about um, you know his, his work with regard to marriage counseling and marital therapy and things like that. Um, and I think there was another uh, therapist that you mentioned in, in another talk of yours that I saw, Virginia Satir. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And, and so I guess what I'm wondering about is, are there other, other people like this that we should be paying attention to that don't come up on our radar screen as behavior? All of them. They all have something to offer. Mm -hmm. We're all working on the same stuff. We're just working on it in different ways. And even people that are heavily psychodynamic or psychoanalytic um, periodically, you know, hit on some pretty useful stuff. You know, for example, 
Freud got to learning history way before Skinner did. He got to it in his own way, but that was the hallmark of his work, was that a person's learning history was a very important part of their current performance. That was really useful. <coughs> um, and there are only a handful of ideas in the world. Now, I mentioned the four ways that people know, understand, and approach human behavior morally, characterologically, or psychologically, and then there's our way, the fourth way, which is circumstantially. So people are all coming from those four directions. Um, the, the three, the old ones, the characterological, psychological, and moral ones, they've been around for thousands of years. You know, the moral one's been around since before the Old Testament. The characterological and the psychological one, has been, they've been around since before the New Testament. But the circumstantial one is pretty new. It hasn't had a good hearing yet. The other ones have had a great hearing, and they are, in my opinion, largely responsible for all the horrible things that people do to people in the world today. They do it in the name of those ideas. Like, <clears throat> once we decide somebody or a bunch of somebodies are evil, well, we can do anything we want to them. We could, you know, put them to death, imprison them. We can wage war on the country where they live. Mm -hmm. um, but once we take a circumstantial view of things, everything changes. We soften our approach more uh, understanding, more compassionate, and frequently have a desire to help because we know we can do something about circumstances. Uh, so what I look for in the ideas of all the great thinkers is anything that directs my attention to circumstances, number one, and number two, gives me a persuasive or seductive way to talk about it. Uh, I see. Are there sources that you could recommend Absolutely. Practitioners go to that 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 you know would be you know kind of a, a a place where the contextual view or the circumstantial view would be more prevalent than others. All well, for example, with ACT um, and uh, dialectical behavior therapy, and probably uh, functional analytic psychotherapy, um, maybe even rational emotive therapy. All those can be traced back to a thinker named Gurdjieff, uh, who was a Sufi philosopher. And there are far more books on Amazon.com that are by or about Gurdjieff. Could you spell that, please? Yeah, G-U-R-D-I-J-E-F-F. -F. Okay. There are hundreds of books about him and by him, way more than any group of behavior analysts you can name. Now, the language of his ideas is arcane. And some of his ideas are nutty, and some of his ideas are absolutely excellent. So ACT can be traced back to the forum, which is put on by Landmark Education, which is ultimately uh, invented by Werner Erhardt, and Werner Erhardt was informed by the ideas of Gurdjieff. I mean, you can trace these ideas back to original sources. But what I was going to say is there's this thing that we sometimes quibble over called uh, uh, non-contingent uh, non reinforcement. Mm -hmm. um, well, there's another way of saying it. It's far more seductive, and that is unconditional positive. I was going to say that's I was, that's where was where I thought that was going. Yeah, um, well, Carl and, Rogers. Yeah, for a good example of that, I recommend all behavior analytic practitioners go on YouTube, find <clears throat> a sample of Carl Rogers doing therapy, and watch how unconditional positive regard actually works. Because one of the keys to treatment for all the kids that have anxiety disorders is one element of treatment is emotional acceptance. But what does that mean? Well, go watch Carl Rogers and you can see what it looks like. And in my opinion, every human being could use a little of that, you know, just to know that at least for a moment, maybe that moment would last an hour in a week that they were unconditionally accepted by one human being, no matter what they're thinking, no matter what they're feeling, no matter what they believe, no matter what they've done, no matter what they want to do, that is medicine. And medicine for what? Well, medicine for the soul. But you know what? We don't talk that way. Yeah. We do want to talk that way with somebody when we're troubled. And I don't think it's the kind of conversation we should necessarily avoid. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I'd say uh, uh, definitely Rogers. There's some useful stuff in Abraham Maslow. All this stuff sort of speaks to social validity, you know, 
the core ideas that we have that are communicated with scientific jargon don't have much social validity. Um, but the ideas themselves are powerful. All we need to do is jazz them up a little bit with some fancy language. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like a, you know, a negligee has nothing to do with conception. But it's a really important part of the process frequently. That what we need is more negligees that we can drape on our ideas. So I see. <laughs> All right, well that that's a that's a powerful metaphor. Uh, <laughs> it's probably just ruined my career. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, we, we're going to get letters from the uh, you know uh, you know if, if not from the master's level therapist, uh, maybe from that one. But uh, that's okay. It's uh, nothing wrong with uh, you know evoking a little uh, emotional response, I guess. And, um, so. Um, Cool. This has been just uh, really fascinating, and I think this provides the the framework for uh, a very informal yet really helpful tutorial for some of these really common things that we encounter um, as, as practitioners and just as human beings. So, um, Pat, I really uh, have enjoyed this conversation, and I want to thank you for uh, coming back to the Behavioral Observations podcast. You bet, man. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. All right, cool. Talk to you later. See you on the highways and byways. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty, folks. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Pat Fryman as much as I did. You know, we are at the uh, hour plus mark here, so I'm going to keep my closing commentary brief and just limit it to thanking you, as always, for checking out the Behavioral Observations podcast. You know, if you have any comments on this show, you can certainly head over to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Behavioral Observations. You can certainly go to my website, behavioralobservations.com, and look for Session 16, and there's a section where you can put comments in there. And if you want a uh, kind of a sneak peek at who's coming up next, uh, you, you can sign up for my email list, and there's many ways to do that over at behavioralobservations.com. So, uh, again, thanks so much for listening. You know, we've got, uh, you know, well over 60,000 downloads these days, and it just keeps on rolling. And so uh, it doesn't happen without you guys. I truly appreciate everyone for taking the time out of their day to download and listen to these shows. And so uh, until the next time, we'll see you in the next session of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast. <laughs>